sports fans of all ages, faces, and places from every stadium, arena, and auditorium all over the world. May I have your attention, please? Well, time's coming when we're going to have to handy up. Handy up and kick in like men. Like men! It is now time to bring to your listening ears, hearts, and minds a sports podcast named Wendell's World in Sports with the one and only Wendell Wallace. Tell him how you feel. A podcast that gives you strong, passionate, unapologetic, uncompromised thoughts and opinions about the everyday happenings in the NFL. And college football to the NBA in my Georgetown Hoyas. Giannis fires one down and an exclamation point for Milwaukee. To any other sporting news of the day. And now, introducing the man whose love of sports was born and bred on the greatest Muhammad Ali, Lim Baez, Magic Johnson, Bernard King, and Eric Dickerson, Wendell Wallace. Bonjour, bonsoir, monsieur, mademoiselle, je m'appelle Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World of Sports, I'm so glad that you could be with us. Que pasa, mi amigos, mi llamo Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. Shalom, assalamu alaikum, konnichiwa, namaste, good morning, good abend, all that good stuff. Welcome to Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host. Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. A lot of great things to get down on and discuss today in the world of sports. Anywhere where you're listening to this podcast, any podcasting host that you're listening to this podcast on, iHeart, iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, do me a favor. If you could, if you could download, if you could subscribe, if you could rate, if you could review, most importantly, enjoy the most unique, entertaining, thought-provoking sports talk podcast If you could do that, it would make me the happiest human being walking the face of this earth. I ain't lying about that one. A lot of great things to get in and discuss today. I am recording this just before the Cincinnati Bengals play the Baltimore Ravens on Thursday Night Football. I wanted to do something in terms of putting down something yesterday, Wednesday, but by the time I started and by the time I was going, my, my Georgetown Hoyas we're uh, playing the Rutgers Scarlet Knights, and except for my goddaughter and except for my mother, nothing comes before my Georgetown Hoyas, and except for maybe my job. But those are the three things in life, as of right now, that uh, come before my Georgetown Hoyas. Even my podcast does not supersede my Georgetown Hoyas. So I said, you know what, I'm going to go ahead, I'm going to watch this game, I'm going to go ahead and report on this game, which I will, the last po- uh, last segment of the podcast um, not really disappointed in the performance, just in case, because I, I, I know all of you have, I know all of you know this. Georgetown lost the first road game under the Ed Cooley era, lost to uh, Rutgers, fought hard, but they lost. Um, I'll get into that at the end of the podcast. Really not angry about that so much. I knew this was going to be a tough task. I knew this was going to be a tough assignment. I knew going on the road to play a team that just missed the NCAA tournament last year in Rutgers and the team that's rebuilding in Georgetown, new coach, new players, knew that it was going to be tough. So um, losing the way we did, we fought, we rebounded better. So I'm, I'm happy about that. The fact that our shot selection was shit, the fact that our low post play is anemic, the fact that we can't beat anybody off the dribble unless his name is Jaden Epps and his finishing was putrid. Last night, other than that, though, um, you know, I'm happy. I'm happy with the hustle. I'm happy with the rebounding. I'm happy with the defense, all of those things. It's just a matter of continuing to improve under Ed Cooley, the toughness, the chemistry, the togetherness, um, all those things hopefully will come into play. But then again, 
I will save all of that for the last segment of the podcast. How do we lose the Holy Cross? Holy shit, I don't know. But again, but again, but again, I will save all of that for the last part of the podcast. Because I know we have to go ahead and we have to speak about the NFL. Because right now, the playoff picture in both the AFC and the NFC is starting to take shape. And, uh, ooh, it's looking a little bit juicy. Let me go ahead and first talk about the AFC. Love, love to say this phrase after 10 weeks of the NFL. If the season ended today, <laughs> right? If the season ended today in the AFC, the top seven teams would be the Kansas City football team, 7-2, and two, coming off a bye week. Of course, they've got the game of the season on Monday night against the Philadelphia Eagles. The number two seed leading the AFC North, the Baltimore Ravens. Um, really um, pulling out a defeat from the jaws of victory in Cleveland or losing to Cleveland at home, but they're still the number two seed in leading the AFC North. The number three seed, the Jacksonville Jaguars, a putrid performance leading the AFC South, but they lost to San Francisco in dominant fashion. They're still six and three. The number four seed and leading the AFC East, the Miami Dolphins. They're coming off a bye week. The number five seed, Pittsburgh Steelers. Pittsburgh, right? Didn't I write them off or didn't I say there should be some concern with them about, oh, I don't know, five or six weeks ago? They are now currently a half game behind the Ravens. They're 6-3, and three, AFC North. They beat the Green Bay Packers this past Sunday. It's Cleveland Browns, 6-3, and three, AFC North. They beat Baltimore, but um, their season basically now is over with the injury, season-ending shoulder injury to Deshaun Watson. I'll get into that. The number seven seed. In the AFC. Remember when we always spoke about, man, which one of these teams at the beginning of the season or going into the season, which one of these teams that were terrible, that were inept, that were anemic, that were embarrassing last season, which one of these teams is going to go up and rise and make some make some hay, make some noise, makes, get people's attention in terms of turning things around? This always happens. Well, this season is the Houston Texans, the number seven seed in the AFC, 5-4, and four, AFC South, best victory that they've had in I don't know how many years this past Sunday against the uh, Houston Texans. So they're at the top seven seeds for you. Kansas City, number one, Baltimore, number two, Jacksonville, number three, the Dolphins of Miami, number four, Stealing Steelers of Pittsburgh, number five, the Black and Blue Browns of Cleveland, number six, and Houston, how about them Texans at number seven? Outside looking in, we got the Cincinnati Bengals, who again lost to Houston. We've got the Buffalo Bills, who just fired their offensive coordinator. I don't know how that's going to turn things around, but they're currently five and five, and uh, Another head-scratching loss against the Denver Broncos. It's not so much that they lost the game, but it was a situation that looked like neither team really wanted to win the game. I don't know. It was maybe more of Buffalo not wanting to win the game and Denver not having the ability to truly win the game by itself. It needed the help of four Denver, excuse me, four um, Buffalo turnovers and a penalty in terms of 12 uh, men on the field as they were kicking the game-winning field goal. So there's some stuff going on in Buffalo that I don't know about. I know the injuries to the defense has been catastrophic. I don't know. Again, so, I mean, you have an offense that is racking. You have Josh Allen, who's playing near an MVP level if, if, if you take away those interceptions and four turnovers, even though one of the interceptions were not his fault, was not on him, on Sunday night or Monday night, excuse me, it's just a matter of it's boom or bust 
in terms of offense is concerned with the uh, Buffalo Bills. So we'll see if the uh, change in offensive coordinators can do anything, but they're on the outside looking in at 5-5 five and five in the AFC. The Indianapolis Colts just beat New England in Frankfurt, Germany this past Sunday. They're 5-5. Five and five. If, you're, um, if you're Germany out there, and by the way, for those listening in Germany, whether it be Frankfurt or whether it be, uh, um, oh, I don't know, any other place in Berlin, excuse me, any other place in Germany, a good morning, good Abend. But there you go. For those who had to sit there in Germany and watch the press conference of Bill Belichick, there you go. Hey, Germans, here's the deal. For those who live in this country and might be asking, is he always this salty? Is he always like that? Is he always this crabby? Is he always that monotone? Is he always that... Dull? Is he always that angry? Is he always that foreboding? Is he always that uh, grouchy? Is he always like that? Yeah, that's pretty much Bill Belichick during the uh, press conferences during the regular season. Win or lose, that's what you get. So here from America, we introduce you to the laconic, to the charismatic, to the get up and boogie, to the dancing on the ceiling, dancing on the uh, uh, dancing on the. Uh, table with the lampshade on we welcome you the loquacious the energetic bill belichick mm, mm, mm. look at the look at the new england patriots man look at the new england patriots what has happened to them we talked about the surprise being the houston texans in terms of reaching re- expectations succeeding exceeding expectations How about the most disappointing team in the NFL being the New England Patriots? How about one of the most disappointing players in the NFL this season being Mac Jones? Maybe the most disappointing coach or coaches being Bill O'Brien, the offensive coordinator for the Patriots and Bill Belichick. And now at 71 years old, what did that mean for Bill Belichick? I spoke about this on my podcast. What does it mean for Bill Belichick moving forward? Because now it's almost like a fait accompli in terms of uh, he ain't coming back to... uh, he ain't coming back to New England. And here we have a guy in shouting distance, in reaching distance, in shooting distance of becoming the all-time winningest coach in NFL history. One of the most fabled and one of the most storied and one of the most hardest and one of the hardest uh, acclimates to uh, uh, you know accomplishments to achieve. So if Bill Belichick ain't coming back, where is he going to go? And if Bill Belichick is not coming back, where can he go where people are going to be giving him, organizations are going to be giving him, where owners are going to be giving him the full autonomy that he's probably going to want? You don't become Bill Bill Belichick. You don't win as many Super Bowls and then say, yeah, I'm going to go to another team if I'm let go, if I resign, if I get fired by the New England Patriots and work under a general manager. Basically, as Bill Parcells once said, work for someone who's going to be shopping and buying the groceries for me to cook the meal. It's going to be interesting to see, A, which team would be willing, which franchise, which owner is going to be willing to give him that autonomy. And what are we going to be speaking about now? Is Bill Bill Belichick at the age of 71 going to be able to take on a rebuilding situation? If he says, just throwing out a team here, just say, for instance, if Matt Eberflus gets fired from Chicago, would Bill Belichick go to Chicago, one of the storied franchises in NFL history? Remember, he's already been the coach of the Cleveland Browns, an historic organization. Um, He turned around the New England Patriots for about 15 seconds. He was the coach of the New York Jets. Would he go to a fabled franchise like the 
Chicago Bears, George Hallis and all those guys and um, try to see what he can do? And what would even be his intentions? What would be the expectations? What would be the expectations, real, realistic expectations for both him and the organization? At 73 years old, or excuse me, 71 years old, coach, are you doing this just to get the record? How long are you going to be in for this rebuilding process? I don't know of any other coaches who are the elite that are looking to get themselves another coach. I don't know. But it sure ain't going to be Bill Belichick, even if Bill Belichick becomes available. Andy Reid ain't going nowhere. Jim Harbaugh ain't going nowhere. Uh, Doug Peterson ain't going nowhere. Um, McDonald is for the coach for Miami. He ain't going nowhere. Mike Tomlin isn't going anywhere. Kevin Stefanski isn't going anymore anywhere. And D'Amico Ryan ain't going nowhere. So I don't know anywhere, anyhow, any way, any place. Maybe except for if you take a look at the AFC, maybe the Tennessee Titans if they move on because right now Tennessee is three and eight. Uh, and again, New England is 2-8. I don't see any landing spot really in the AFC for Bill Belichick. And again, um, would the New York Giants make another run for Bill Belichick? First, he was the coach at the defensive coordinator, but will the Giants reach out if things continue to go down the toilet and and um, they fired Brian Dayball for whatever reason? Would they would, would they go ahead and try to reach out to Bill Belichick? Would the Chicago Bears reach out to Bill Belichick? Would I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm looking. Kevin O'Connell from Minnesota ain't going nowhere. Um, let me see. Pete Carroll ain't going nowhere. Would the New Orleans Saints maybe go ahead and reach out to Bill Belichick if he became available? Kyle Shanahan ain't going nowhere. Um, you know, nipping and scratching and clawing and chewing at the ankles. Uh, the coach for um, Detroit, he ain't going nowhere. You know, the, the, I don't see it. I don't see it anywhere. Maybe Todd Bowles. Would the commanders, would my commanders go ahead and try to see about getting uh, Bill Belichick? I don't know. I don't know. Sean McVay, if he re- if he takes a break or had enough with the Los Angeles Rams, would the Rams go ahead and get Belichick? I don't know. Again, it would be a situation of where are we matching up? How are we going to do this? What are your expectations? Because just say, for instance, my team, the Washington Commanders, I wouldn't be interested in Bill Belichick. I really wouldn't. I wouldn't be interested in Bill Belichick because I'm thinking as of right now, Bill Belichick is not going to be around for the long haul. I don't know if Bill Belichick has the stomach. I don't know if Bill Belichick has the stamina. I don't know if Bill Belichick has the zeal and the want to to try to rebuild or turn around the program. Even though Washington is 4-6, and six, they're much closer to being at the bottom of the NFC than they are at the top of the NFC. So I, I don't know... What Bill Belichick would try to get out of in terms of going to the uh, commanders. And again, as a fan of the commanders, I would like to see them give someone like Eric Bieniemy a chance to uh, coach this team. That this team and the commanders is a little a ways from competing with the San Francisco's and the Philadelphia's and the Detroit Lions of the world. So, you know, I just wanted to kind of sidebar sidetrack a little bit and get on that I know that we're speaking about you know teams in the uh, NFC and the AFC as far as the playoff picture is concerned and the New England Patriots are far from that but just in terms of uh, speaking about Belichick I just wanted to get that out there playoff picture in the NFC the National Football Conference if we take a look at the top seven seeds the number one team the Philadelphia Eagles they're eight and one coming off a bye again they have the game of the season on Monday against the uh, Kansas City football team, the number two seed, 
being the Detroit Lions, the NFC North. They just beat the uh, L.A. Chargers and the uh, Lions. I don't know if you would maybe call them one of the surprises. It's just when you have the name, when you have the team, when you have the franchise Detroit Lions living up to expectations and the in-season's expectations were to be that team that was going to make that jump to be from pretenders to true contenders. In fact, that the Lions are reaching those expectations. There's generations of Lion fans who've never heard of those of those things. All through Barry Sanders, all through Megatron, all through the everythings, you never heard the Detroit Lions being talked about in the breath that they are right now in terms of being one of the true contenders in the NFC. So they're the number two seed, the San Francisco 49ers at six and three. They're in the number three seed. The New Orleans Saints are the number four seed. Why? Because they're in the eight NFC South and why? Someone's got to win that thing. So they're the number four seed and would be in the playoff because they're the leaders in the NFC South. The Seattle Seahawks, six and three. They're the number five seed. The Dallas Cowboys, the number six seed is six and three. The Minnesota Vikings, Joshua Dobbs. How about that? Just when you thought the Kurt Cousins situation with him going down, even though they started off slowly at one and four, Kevin O'Connell, the head coach of the Vikings, needs to take a bow, needs to get a high five, needs to get a hug from a, an attractive woman because uh, he has done he has done a fabulous job with the uh, Vikings. When many people, including myself, the, the Vikings were done for, and even reiterated and strengthened that argument once once uh, Kurt Cousins went down with the Achilles tear, but they have turned things around. So again, the top seven seeds, top seven teams in the NFC, you're looking at Philadelphia, number one, Detroit, number two, San Francisco, number three, New Orleans, number four, the division the leaders, then number five, the Seattle Seahawks, number six seed, the Dallas Cowboys, and the number seven seed, the Minnesota Vikings. Outside looking in, Tampa Bay at four and five, my commanders at four and six, the, watch, the uh, Atlanta Falcons, also at four and six, and when you take a look at the NFC compared to the AFC, and you take a look at the teams whose seasons are basically over, and in the NFC you have the Green Bay Packers at three and six, you have the Los Angeles Rams at three and six, you have the Chicago Bears, you have the Arizona Cardinals, you have the New York Giants, and you have the Carolina Panthers. You consider those teams whose basically seasons are over, and you compare that to the AFC, which really only has I would say three teams, maybe Denver, Tennessee, New England. Tennessee and New England, no doubt about it. I'm leaning heavily toward the Denver Broncos. Don't have too much confidence in the Las Vegas Raiders or the Los Angeles Chargers. Antonio Spe- Antonio Pierce, um, nice two-game winning streak, I guess, as the interim pro- coach. I forgot about mentioning Josh McDaniels was fired out here uh, being the head coach. They fired the um, head coach, McDaniels, to fire the offensive coordinator, and they fired the general manager. Um, I'm glad that Pierce got his win against the teams that play in New Jersey and represent New York and the Jets and the Giants, but um, I don't see them really making any type of inroads. I don't see them really turning around the season to the point where they can go ahead and get into the playoffs. So um, nice start to Antonio Pierce. I would like to see him really in sincerity get a get a chance to be the new head coach of the Las Vegas Raiders if the Raiders do well for the rest of the season. But um, all signs point to the possibility, regardless of what the Raiders do, unless they just go hog wild and win 
the rest of their games or go 8-2 and two or some nonsense like that and win a playoff game. I think the leader of the pack to uh, be the new head coach of uh, the Las Vegas Raiders would be Jim Harbaugh in terms of the want, in terms of the need from the organization is concerned. You hear the scuttlebutt, you hear the news, you hear the rumors that if Jim Harbaugh were to leave Michigan, and that seems like more of a fait complete than it is um, him staying, that uh, his return to Pro Bowl would be with the Las Vegas Raiders. I'll get into Jim Harbaugh in the second segment of the uh, podcast. So, yeah, man, there you go. When you speak about what's happening with these teams, when you speak about what's going on with these teams, with these ball clubs, with the, with the, um, with the um, playoff picture in the AFC and in the NFC, um, really, I think the best team is going to be Philadelphia. I think that they're the uh, most physical when we're speaking about the line to play, when we're speaking about the physicality from the offensive and defensive standpoint. Um, but, um, you know, on any given Sunday, anything can happen. Can, you know, Kansas City with Patrick Mahomes still looking to see what receiver is going to step up for them. You can't throw to Travis Kelsey 15 times a game. And even though Kansas City has a strong defense, has a legit defense, has an elite defense, and a defense that can take them to the Super Bowl, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of worried in terms of how much responsibility is going to be given to uh, Patrick Mahomes. Too many times this season, I've seen Patrick Mahomes with a five and seven, seven step drop, and he's looking, and he's searching, and he's looking, and he's weaving, and he's bobbing, and bobbing, and he's moving all over the place in the pocket looking for someone to throw. The offensive line, who has been a little bit more consistent than they were in those, at the beginning of the season, we see the offensive line giving Mahomes the time to throw, but there's nobody open. Or there's nobody getting open. So we have to improvise. improvise. He's not hitting folks when they are supposed to come out, when they're supposed to be open. So for Kansas City, that's my main thing about them. I'm not worried about that defense. I am worried about, though, if you're looking for the Kansas City football team to repeat, that would be my, my main thing in terms of what would worry me. The lack of skill players at both the running back and the wide receiver position. Yes, Isaiah Pacheco, strong runner, physical runner, consistent runner, but uh, with the lack of weapons that the football team from Kansas City has from the wide receiver position, that would uh, scare me a little bit. For someone like a Miami Dolphins team, let's see what they can do to try to win games uh, against teams that are any good. Um, one of the things that, and this is one of the things that kind of concerned me about the uh, Miami Dolphins, is sort of the fact that trickery. I, I don't like teams that have to use a lot of trickery to win games. I, I don't like these offensive gurus and geniuses who pull out all of these t- plays that seem to be written in the ass. You know, I, I like those teams like the Philadelphia Eagles who are going to be physical, who are basically going to tell you, this is what we're going to do. This is our game plan. We're meat and potatoes. We're very vanilla. And we're just going to go out there and we're just going to out-execute you and we're just going to be better than you. That, that, that's the thing. If you have to do the double reverses and you have to do all these gadget plays and you have to do all these funky, junky, lunky plays that sometimes the Miami Dolphins do, and they do it very well. And you have the wide receivers of a Jaden Waddle and the uh, Tyreek Hill for Tua Tunga Vailoa to throw to. I mean, all of that is great. All of that is fantastic. Mozart, the uh, running back, gives them a uh, running threat from the uh, backfield. All that stuff is nice. And Tua has been playing much better, i.e. he's not getting hurt. He's not getting concussed. He's learning how to slide when he needs to in terms of he's playing better in that regard. He's being available for his team. 
and Tua being available for his team, playing like he's playing, makes him without question one of the top five, six, seven quarterbacks in the league consistently in terms of Sunday, Monday, or uh, Thursday night games. So, you know, in that regard, that's fantastic. I just don't like I just don't like gadget plays. I just don't like teams that have to go out there and try to out-gadget you. And in the games that Miami lost, it was just a situation where the other team was more physical, the other team was more muscular, the other team was more um, imposing their will, and Miami really didn't have an explanation for that or really didn't have an answer for that. So again, if I'm the... If I'm one of the fans of the Miami Dolphins, that's one of the things I'm taking a look at. Jacksonville, you know, mixed bag. I guess Jacksonville was supposed to be one of those teams. You can might even say that Jacksonville was supposed to be the Detroit Lions of the AFC in terms of, you know, after what we saw uh, last season from Jacksonville, the emergence of Trevor Lawrence, the coaching of Doug Peterson replacing that clown who's now doing college uh, football uh, shows on Fox. Um, the, the, the improvement that the Jacksonville Jaguars made from a couple of years ago to this past season actually winning a playoff game, playing Kansas City relatively uh, uh, tough in the playoffs, um, we were supposed to see Jacksonville take another step step and really be one of the emerging teams and not just the not just the AFC but also in the NFL I've seen some of that I'm not going to uh, really start throwing a wet blanket on the accomplishments and the improvement of Jacksonville this season based on what they did against the uh, San Francisco 49ers. I think that uh, if you take a closer look, Trevor Lawrence is still developing well. I think the team is doing well. They're in first place in the AFC, one game ahead of Houston. So they're going to uh, continue to improve or continue to reach expectations because in all actuality, I believe that they're going to make the playoff. And again, that is reaching expectations. I think after last season, a strong showing in terms of the regular season without question, without uh, any type of trepidation to believe that the Jacksonville Jaguars are going to be getting to the uh, playoffs, especially in that division that they're in where you have the Texans surprise, but then you also have the Indianapolis Colts and uh, uh, the Houston, Indianapolis, and the Tennessee Titans in that division. I think that the uh, Jacksonville Jaguars have done quite well. Well, thinking about this, though, man, because I wanted to get to this. Deshaun Watson, this, this just popped in my head, man. This season-ending injury to his shoulder. That's going to cause him to uh, miss the rest of the season and basically kind of uh, torpedo the chances for the Cleveland Browns to really do anything. I mean, this, in my opinion, even though he wasn't playing like it, this was a situation where Deshaun Watson, this is almost similar to uh, Aaron Rodgers blowing out his Achilles the first game for the New York New York Jets in terms of the impact that it had. And, and not so much the impact of, oh my goodness gracious, Deshaun Watson was playing like one of the elite quarterbacks in the NFL. Now with him, everything is going to go kaput. No, I, I, don't, I don't mean that. Because Watson was very inconsistent. Watson was playing at a below average of, of quarterbacking on a consistent basis. Yes, I thought that he was getting better. Yes, it was a situation where he started off very slowly in that game against Baltimore, but then found a way to complete 14 straight passes and uh, make them passes and some drives to uh, set up the winning field goal for Cleveland's best uh, 
victory of the season. But 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 this was a situation where Deshaun Watson was not playing well on a consistent basis for the Cleveland Browns. I don't care the fact that he signed a five-year, $230 million guaranteed dollar contract. I don't care if he was being paid the NFL minimum. He was not playing up to expectation. Of course, it makes it more egregious in terms of um, the injury, in terms of his anemic play, the fact that he's making as much money as he's making. But just take away those expectations that come with making that type of money. Deshaun Watson are not... On, on no level whatsoever was living up to the responsibilities that he had as a starting quarterback and what his expectations were going to be in leading the offense for the Cleveland Browns. What makes it more, I don't want to use the word tragic because no one's dying, what makes it more mis- unfortunate for the Browns is that they don't have anybody in terms of to back him up. I believe if... I believe that the Cleveland Browns would have kept Jacoby Brissett. That they would still have mm, 55-60% chance uh, as of right now to make it to the playoffs. Because that's how great, that's how elite that defense is for Cleveland. I think it was a situation where you could you could put in a game manager in Cleveland would still make the playoff. Now they wouldn't be winning the Super Bowl. They wouldn't be any they wouldn't be at that level. But still with that defense alone, that defense is good enough with a game managing quarterback to win the NF to the win the AFC North. But they don't have one. They're gonna start Dorian Thompson, the um, quarterback from uh from UCLA who's a rookie. And I was mentioning about Aaron Rodgers. The, the fact that Aaron Rodgers, and, and, I, and I think that's re- very similar to the New York Jets and to the Cleveland Browns in terms of putting so much responsibility on one player within that offense and really having no plan B. Because if, you if the New York Jets would have kept Mike White, yeah, Mike White isn't Patrick Mahomes. He's not Joe Burrow. He's not Jalen Hurts. But Mike White is good enough as a quarterback for an entire season with the defense that the Jets have to get them in the playoffs. The fact that they have a weapon at the wide receiver in uh, Garrett Wilson, I think the Jets with Mike White at the quarterback would get themselves in the playoffs. Again, just like Cleveland with Jacoby Brissett and Jacoby Brissett, who quarterbacked the team last year when Watson was uh, missing the first 11 games because of uh, his inability to uh, stop sexually harassing and raping or doing whatever he did Besides a therapist. But um, while he was absent, um, Jacoby Brissett played admirably. So, I mean, this is a situation now. I mean, it's almost like (laughs) Minnesota kind of turned out to be the lucky one of them getting Joshua Dobbs. A Joshua Dobbs-type quarterback, you put him in at Cleveland to replace Deshaun Watson for the rest of this season, starting now with the uh, team, with the the Browns being 6-3, you put you put Joshua Dobbs on the New York Jets team with them, with that defense, I think both those teams would be vying for the playoffs. So I think the most competitive division in the NFL is the, NFC, is the uh, AFC North. When you have Cleveland, you have Baltimore, you have Cincinnati, and you have Pittsburgh. Which one of those, there, could there be a situation when everything is all said and done, Could there be a situation where you have all four teams from the AFC North representing the uh, division in the playoffs? 
I mean, we don't know. Houston is still an unknown commodity. We don't know what's going to become of the Buffalo Bills. We don't know what's going to be happening with some of these other teams. We don't know. So could this be a situation where we already have, of course, the division winner is going to be in there, and you already have the Pittsburgh Steelers in place. You already have the Cleveland Browns in place. Now you have the Bengals on the outside just looking in. Could we see a situation where all four teams from the AFC North make the playoffs? I'm going to say no because Cleveland now, with that debilitating injury to uh, Deshaun Watson, does not have a chance. And now you think about, and now you speak about, and now you contemplate about what's going on with the Cincinnati Bengals, right? A, a bad defeat. You can almost say snatching defeat from the jaws of victory on Sunday against the Houston Texans. This game, really, I don't want to say it's do or die. You don't want to say that bullshit because you never know what's going to be happening from the rest of the season to the rest of the season. But um, to say that this is a very important game for the Cincinnati Bengals, I'm thinking it will be an understatement, to say the least. Um, this is not only the game is going to be important, I believe, in terms of the wins and losses and placing themselves in their division and the playoff race and all those type of things. Not only do I believe from that perspective, this is an important game for the Bengals, but also just in terms of their psyche, just in terms of their confidence. I think this is a game that could really either turn this team around or maybe start having them go on a little bit of a free fall before they recover, if they ever recover, recover if they lose this game tonight. Uh, we, we, we see the slow start by Joe Burrow. We see the ups and downs, the hills and the valleys in terms of this season for the Cincinnati Bengals. We saw at the beginning of the season how Cincinnati started off slow, how anemic and inept they were on offense, mainly because of the injuries mainly to uh, Joe Burrow. Then we see Joe Burrow coming back and playing at a near MVP level for a couple of weeks, putting him back into the discussion. Not at the front of the line or anything like that, but in the discussion of is Joe Burrow over the next six, seven, eight weeks going to make that push to get him to uh, win an MVP or put him in serious MVP consideration, which entail, we would believe, would put the Cincinnati Bengals right back to where they were last season as one of the favorites, as one of the elite uh, teams in the AFC to win themselves a Super Bowl, at the very least win that conference championship. This game tonight that I'm going to be watching in about uh, 25 minutes, this all has that wrapped up into it in terms of how they play on the road against the Baltimore Ravens. And for Baltimore, you also have to remember also that this is an important game because they're still in the mix not only to win the AFC North, but this could be a situation where you lose this game and that starts a little bit of a losing streak. You lose two to, you lose two games in a row in the AFC North. You lose three out of five in the AFC North in all likelihood because of not just the competitive level of the division, but also because of the conference you could find yourself on the outside looking in. Because again, let's just go back. We don't know in totality what the Houston Texans are. Are they pretenders or are they real contenders to make the playoffs? We don't know what's going to be happening with the Buffalo Bills. We don't know what's going to be happening with some of the other teams outside of the AFC North. Someone's going to win that division, whether it be Pittsburgh, Baltimore, or Pittsburgh, Baltimore, or Cincinnati. So one of those teams are going to automatically make the playoffs. But if you're the Browns, if you're the Steelers, if you're the Ravens, if you're the Bengals, you you can't afford 
even a little bit of a slip-up. I believe Kansas City can afford to lose this game on Monday night and maybe go on a little bit of a, I shouldn't say losing streak, but I, if they come down the stretch right now, Cincinnati, excuse me, uh, Kansas City is 7-2, and two, so they have eight more games left. If, if, if Kansas City goes 5-3, and three, I still think they're going to be fine because of their division because I don't believe in the Chargers under Brandon Staley. I don't believe in the Las Vegas Raiders, and I don't believe in the Denver Broncos. So this is not a situation where um, Kansas City is going to take their foot off the pedal or they're going to be you know, washed over with hubris and arrogance. I don't think that. I still think they're going to play hard. They're champions. They're defending champions. They got the most valuable player in the league in this totality, not just for one season, the most important player in Patrick Mahomes. So they, they still have that. They still have a Super Bowl Hall of Fame coach in Andy Reid. So this is not going to be a situation where I think Kansas City is going to stumble, or if they do stumble, it's going to be because of slacking, because of boredom, because of arrogance, or anything like that. But a situation where if they lose on Monday to Philadelphia, Okay, sucks, damn, shit, but guess what? We did just beat them in the Super Bowl. And we've got Patrick Mahomes, we can do it again. With Patrick Mahomes in that defense, anything is possible. As Kevin Garnett said, anything is possible! So, uh, I wouldn't be too shooken up. I wouldn't be too worried. I would be R-E-L-A-X-I-N-G-ing when if either the Philadelphia Eagles or the Kansas City football team loses on Monday. While it's the game of the season, without question, and you want to send some messages, you want to build your confidence, you want to have that in your holster in terms of when you need it, in terms of a victory, especially if you're speaking about uh, Kansas City, especially, well, whoever, let me see who the, um, let me see who the home team is in this game. Uh, Yeah, so, so for instance, for Philadelphia, to go on the road and win in Philadelphia, excuse me, Philadelphia to go on the road and win in Kansas City, that would be big. That would be huge in a situation like that. But it's not the end of the world for Kansas City if they lose. I think going back to this game, when you're speaking about the Bengals, when you're speaking about the Baltimore Ravens, I think this game holds huge implications. Again, not just for the division, but also in terms of moving forward. Because again, I'm, I'm interested to see exactly how long the Pittsburgh Steelers can stay in this with uh, Kenny Pickett. And I'm interested to see exactly what Kevin Stefanski is going to do now that his starting quarterback, Deshaun Watson, is uh, out with an injury. And man, I, I tell you, man, I tell you, I tell you, I tell you, Deshaun Watson, boy. I don't know what it is. I don't know if karma's being a bitch or whatever, but, uh, man, he has not performed like he was supposed to have performed. And we'll we'll see what happens. I mean, when he came over from Houston, when he was traded from Houston, the Browns gave up a whole lot and then gave gave him a guaranteed contract, 230 mil. You can't move on from the brother. You got to keep him around. So next season, we'll, 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 see what, we'll see what he can do. But if I'm Cleveland, just in case I get me a reliable backup quarterback, just in case, it's not for if he starts playing poorly that he gets benched. But, uh, you know, in terms of, I don't know. For some reason, I, I, don't, I, I don't think the Cleveland Browns are going to be getting the Deshaun Watson that they thought they were going to be getting when they traded for him or when he was one of the top three or four quarterbacks in the NFL. Don't really think 
that's going to be happening. So we'll 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 see you ahead. We'll see and we'll we'll uh, see about that. Again, the Monday night game between Kansas City and Philadelphia. Mahomes, Travis Kelsey. So who else? Who else for that team is going to catch a pass? The receivers. Speaking of about Kansas City, the receivers lead the league and drop passes. The team's pass catchers average have 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 uh, dropped twenty five passes this season. Second place is the Los Angeles Rams with twenty one, and the Kansas City players have dropped a pass on seventy and a half percent of all targets. Also, the worst in the league. So I'm going to be interesting. I'm going to be interested to see Kansas City starting off this this stretch, the hardest stretch of the season. Because after this game against Philadelphia, they've got the Raiders, they've got the Packers on the road, then the Bills on the road to the Patriots, then the Raiders, then the Bengals at home, and then at the Chargers. So we'll see what happens moving up. And for Philadelphia, again, looking at that physicality and how much of that bye week um, really helped Jalen Hurts in terms of the injury that he had to his knee. He's, he's been banged up. He's been banged up. And against in for Philadelphia, this game after or the schedule after Kansas City is also going to be interesting because they have home games against Buffalo and San Francisco before they go to Dallas and Seattle. So you take a look at the two teams. Again, you take a look at those remaining schedules. I would put much more of the importance of this game, even though it's not going to be as heavy. It's not going to be as critical as this game that's coming up tonight between Cincinnati and Baltimore. I, I do feel that if you take a look at these two teams that are going to be playing on Monday night, the quote-unquote game of the season between Philadelphia and Kansas City, I would think that going forward after this game, when everything is all said and done, and you have to continue to play these games because it really doesn't matter <laughs> whether you're Philadelphia or Kansas City, who wins this game if you're going to collapse or if you're going to slip after these games, after this game is over. So I would look more intently in terms of taking this game, taking this win, taking this momentum, taking the victory between either one of these teams, moving it forward, playing it forward, and see how the momentum of winning such an important game or a game, winning a game, playing such an elite squad, it'll be interesting to see how that momentum, whether it be for Kansas City or whether it be for Philadelphia, How's that? How's that move them? How does that move them forward, uh, going forward? But yeah, hurts the physicality, being physical, and all those type of things is going to be very, very interesting. I want to really hit this because I heard people speaking about this, and I want to get on this in terms of, hmm, hmm, ain't this something? MVP, really? MVP discussion, interesting. MVP discussion. There's been many. There's been many players. There's been many players throughout these ten weeks that have gotten that MVP mention. Right. It started with started with Tua Tungabailoa. Right. He was riding hot after three, four weeks of the season, especially the performance he put on after Miami beat uh, Denver seventy to twenty. Right. Everybody was sitting there talking about Tua, 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 Tua. Tua. But then after the first month of the season, 
after they got their asses whooped by Buffalo, it was Josh Allen, Josh Allen, Josh Allen, along with Christian McCaffrey, along with Patrick Mahomes, Jalen Hurts, Brock Purdy, right? But after the first month of the season, after the end of September, it was Josh Allen, Josh Allen, Josh Allen. Fast forward the season now to October, all of a sudden now, after that victory 38-6 against the Detroit Lions, where Lamar Jackson went 21-27 for 357 and three touchdowns, all of a sudden it was Lamar Jackson, Lamar Jackson, Lamar Jackson, to go along with the others. The love, the steam, the momentum, the hype for Tunga Vailoa subsided. Josh Allen, kind of his momentum slowed. So it was like, who else can we find? Brock Purdy uh, slowed after Debu Samuels went out and Trent Williams went out for the 49ers and he had a couple of bad games. So his steam kind of dissipated in terms of the MVP race. So we were sitting there going, well, who else is there? What other, who else is going to be there? It's Lamar Jackson, right? Oh my goodness, Lamar Jackson, new offensive coordinator. Did you see the performance that he had at home against the um, Detroit Lions? My goodness gracious. He hasn't thrown better from the pocket. He's not running as much. I said that when I was talking about Lamar Jackson in terms of his MVP candidacy, about how he is now evolving, truly evolving, into a guy who's more patient, more understanding of what's happening surrounding him the system that has been put in place to help accentuate his strengths as a passer, as a quarterback, as an athlete, all combined. I was sitting there talking about, here's a guy, and you got to remember, Lamar has missed games, a multitude of games because of injuries. So the athleticism that he showed his first two or three years in the league, that ain't there anymore. I'm not saying that he's a statue. I'm not saying that he's slow. I'm not saying now that he can't be evasive, he can't be um, elusive or dynamic. I'm not saying that. But it's just those things that he was doing in his first three, four years in the league, he's not doing that anymore. But guess what? As your athletic skills dissipate to where you take a look at the first receivers, that's not open, and if Mark Andrews is in there, just take off and make something dynamic happen. Back, you know, uh, playground football, now Lamar is starting to really, and it's not like he wasn't before, but the evolution of Jackson, of becoming that quarterback, that guy who can stand in the pocket. And guess what? You can win a football game with Lamar Jackson throwing 35 times, 40 times, just like Patrick Mahomes, just like a Joe Burrow. Now, it's advantageous the fact that the Baltimore Ravens do have themselves a strong running game to put around them, much stronger than Kansas City, much stronger than Cincinnati, much stronger than Miami. But still, it's a situation where I do believe, especially from the passing standpoint, pass attempt standpoint, that Lamar Jackson can now be that quarterback who can sit in the pocket, who can read a defense, find his third and fourth receiver, running out of the pocket to make plays being his last resort, I think Lamar Jackson would be that kind of quarterback, a conventional quarterback, fuck it, let's call it like we see it, a white man's quarterback, and still be able to be not just effective, but also valuable, maybe the most valuable. So that was the script. That was the play. That was the chapter in terms of this NFL season about Lamar Jackson. 
in terms of the MVP is concerned. And when we're speaking about MVP, MVP throughout the weeks, started with Tua, started with Christian McCaffrey, started with um, uh, started with Tyreek Hill, started with Josh Allen, started with Patrick Mahomes, started with these guys. The new person to come in rather late once October hit was Lamar Jackson, right? Then Joe Burrow started getting some MVP love after he finally recovered from his uh, calf industry calf industry injury that uh, he sustained came at Cincinnati beat San Francisco on the road albeit a wounded San Francisco 49er team then all of a sudden it was oh my goodness Joe Burrow Burrow he's he's back Joey's back which means that the Cincinnati Bengals they're back this that the other so after that loss to Houston and being outplayed especially in the fourth quarter by this quarterback that kind of like subsided. So now we have the newest member, the newest MVP contender to enter the discussion for MVP of the NFL. Welcome, Mr. C.J. Stroud. C.J. Stroud, quarterback for the Houston Texans, man. Do you realize it's been since, let me see here, it's been almost 50 years 67, 77, 87, 97, 07, 17. So, yeah, it's been 63 years since a rookie actually won the MVP. Over 60 years. We're speaking about Jim Brown in 1957. Only player in NFL history to win the MVP during his, record, during his rookie season. The Houston Texans, as I mentioned before, are the second team in a row from the AFC South that have been the surprise team of the league. Last season, it was the Jacksonville Jaguars. Who would have thunk? Who would have thought when you're speaking about the team in Houston that had the number two and the number three pick, the number three pick through trade, the number two pick because they were just that lousy? Who would have thought watching that team last year? Who would have thought that that team under David Culley at the head coach? Who would have thought that team over the last three seasons, which combined for a record of 11-38-1? Who would have conceived? Who would have thought that this would be the team to be doing what they're doing now. With a rookie head coach, first-time head coach, and a rookie quarterback to be doing those things. C.J. Stroud. And look, as we mentioned before, as I've been mentioning for years, when it comes to MVP voting, whether it be in the NFL, whether it be in the NBA, whether it be in the NHL, or whether it be in the area in Major League Baseball. We always look for the new narratives. We always look for the shiny new toys. We always look for the good stories, right? Because just like back in the day, if it was all about who's the best player in the league, and again, we don't know really the qualifications or the true definition of what the MVP is, right? There, there really is no guideline that we can go through or that the writers or the voters have to vote for an MVP, right? Is it the best player in the league? Is it the best player on the best team? Does it have to be a quarterback? Does it uh, have to be a situation where uh, he's having his best season? Um, he's come out of nowhere. Um, not only is he the most improved, I, I thought that would regarded, I thought that would regulated to if they're having the uh, season that no one expected, I thought that you would be able to win the most improved player more than the most valuable player. But for instance, we, we've kind of grown bored. There's boredom to Patrick Mahomes' greatness, right? Just like Michael Jordan, 
back in the day, how many MVPs could he have won? It was just based on the criteria of what my criteria of the most valuable player is, which is, okay, all the GMs, I want you to take this vote. You can be anonymous about it. But if you were starting a if you were starting a franchise and you had to pick one player, what would, who would that one player be? And I'm quite sure, despite the fact that CJ Stroud has gotten some love at MVP, Joe Burrow, Josh Allen, Tua Tungavailoa, Tyreek Hill, uh, all these other players that you want to name. If you lined up the president of football operations and the general managers and head coaches and told them to take a vote anonymously about who would be the number one pick that you would pick number one to elite your team moving forward, it would be Patrick Mahomes. It would be Patrick Mahomes. Now, Patrick Mahomes, because the best of Patrick Mahomes, he has not risen to as far as statistically is concerned. I mean, this, this is a situation where because of that, he's being punished. Because of that, he's being penalized. And because of that, it's almost a situation where we, 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 well, we've seen this before. I, I've seen Patrick Mahomes better. Now, of course, at that time, he's had Tyreek Hill as a wide receiver. At this time, he might have had a full, a much more talented and better complement of receivers to do so. Right? But, but we've seen Patrick Mahomes do amazing things. So Patrick Mahomes is going to have to take a few years off. Patrick Mahomes is going to have to kind of be taken away from our conscience, from our thinking DNA in terms of, oh my goodness gracious, when, you know who's going to be the MVP? Because there's going to be other players. There's going to be other stories. There's going to be something uh, newer, fresher, more interesting, right? How come Michael Jordan didn't win the MVP more? How come LeBron James didn't win the MVP more, right? There's going to be coming now. I just you know saw the report that Shohei Otani had just won another MVP. There's going to come a time, whether he's playing with the Yankees, whether he's playing with the Dodgers, whether he's playing with the Mariners, whether he's playing with the Giants, there's going to be coming a time where Otani, once he comes back fully recovered from his shoulder surgery, and he starts becoming that two-way threat again as a pitcher and a hitter, that the unbelievable thing that he's going to be doing as a pitcher and a hitter are going to be yawned, are going to be all right, are going to be like we've seen this before, no big deal, same thing with Ronald Acuna, same thing with all these guys. It's going to become, okay, been there, done that, big deal. Even though when Major League Baseball personnel, when Major League Baseball executives talk about who would you want to have, if you had the number one pick, it's going to be Otani. But there's going to come a time where that's going to be the case. But because we've seen his dominance, we've seen his brilliance, it's not going to happen. Same thing now with the NFL. So, C.J. Stroud... That's the new story. That's the new toy. And it's interesting. What a storyline, right? For these writers who vote on this stuff, what a meaty, juicy storyline. Something new, something fresh. This kid coming out of Ohio State, no one saw this in year one. Nobody. So he's taken this ragtag team in Houston who have been the dregs of football in the NFL for a multitude of seasons and he has them in position to where he has right now. Now, also this. C.J. Stroud has been fantastic. C.J. Stroud, not just for a rookie, and maybe you can put a couple levels before if you take away the ooh-ah, if you take away the I can't believe this, you take away the I didn't see this coming, if you take away all of that. As a rookie, 
And we know about rookie expectations. C.J. Stroud has been outstanding. He's been tremendous. He's been fantastic. Patrick Mahomes didn't do this his rookie season. Remember, he sat behind Alex Smith for the majority of that first season. And then he came in and let shit up. Aaron Rodgers had to sit behind Brett Favre for four years. And then took him a couple of years to really get going at the Aaron Rodgers that we knew. Right? Peyton Manning threw, what, 28 interceptions his first year as a um, rookie for the Indianapolis Colts. And that team went 2-14. and 14. I remember Peyton Manning saying as a player, his rookie season, it was like, uh, let me see, my first read was Marvin Harrison, my second read was Marvin Harrison, and then my third read was Marvin Harrison, and I threw the one of the three. It was either Marvin Harrison, Marvin Harrison, Marvin Harrison. And I didn't give a damn if he was single covered. I didn't give a damn if he was double covered. I didn't give a damn if he was triple covered. I didn't give a damn if everybody on the sideline of the opposing team, along with their scout team, ran over and started covering Marvin Harrison. I was so scared. I was so nervous. I was so inept. I was so inexperienced as a quarterback. I was gonna throw the I was gonna throw the Marvin Harrison. I don't give a damn. You could have let the you could have let the the the, the, the st- fans from the stadium file on to the field. I was gonna throw the ball to Marvin Harrison, and I bet you he would have caught it too. But my point is, is that what C.J. Stroud is doing is not the norm. We have not seen this. Troy Aikman was putrid. Troy Aikman was pathetic. Troy Aikman got battered around his rookie year in the NFL. There was even some talk about Steve Walsh, a guy who played for Jimmy Johnson at the University of Miami when Johnson got the job. That There was a situation where there was some competition between him and Steve Walsh coming in. Joe Montana didn't perform like this. Johnny Unitas, what I'm trying to say is that what C.J. Stroud is doing in terms of his effectiveness, in terms of how, how good that he's been as a rookie, this is something that's not normal. So, of course, when you speak about MVP of the league, of course, those things play into what C.J. Stroud is doing. Now, because of his youth, when you speak about, well, you know, that criteria window that you used in terms of if you had the number one pick and you could pick any uh, player in the league, well, then maybe some would maybe maybe go with C.J. Stroud, but that would be based on the fact that the kid is, what, 21, 22 years old, and I have an opportunity to see this kid dominate the league for at least for the next 12 to 15 years minimum. So that would be the reason why you might, quote-unquote, draft him to start that franchise. Or if you had a choice to start your franchise with, maybe that would be the reason why you would draft or you would choose C.J. Stroud. But uh, Patrick Mahomes is still the guy, but you cannot deny, you cannot ignore, you cannot uh, belittle the impact and the, um, and the, yeah, the impact that uh, C.J. Stroud has had. He's passing for over, excuse me, he's passing for over 2,600 yards through his first nine games, which is third best in NFL history. Justin Herbert had 2,700 in 2020. Andrew Luck in 2012 had uh, 2,631. But Stroud has surpassed all of them. The impact, again, that he's had on his team going 5-4 and four in just one game out of the AFC uh, South. Um, they own the division's best point differential and have already beaten the first-place Jaguars on the road. They're the only team in the AFC, only the Chiefs, or excuse me, only the uh, only the Kansas City football team, the Baltimore Ravens, the Buffalo Bills, Miami Dolphins, and the Browns have out, have outscored opponents by more points this season. And you take a look at the Texans; they don't have the defense of Kansas City, they don't have the defense of Baltimore, they don't have the defense of the Cleveland Browns. Now you could also say that the uh, Browns don't have the same offense as the Houston Texans, but albeit 
Um, you know, it's a two-way deal when you're speaking about how great those defenses have been for that point differential. So for C.J. Stroud, yeah, man, come on down. Come on down. Join the MVP race. I don't know how long you're going to stay. I don't know if this is just a short-term thing. When, when you go into, when you come into MVP land, I don't know if you're just going to be staying. I don't know if you're going to be renting. I don't know if you're just uh, going to be at the hotel before you go back to pretty good land. But as of right now, man, C.J. Stroud for the Houston Texans is the real deal. Um, I got to talk about college football when I get back. Not so much about the selection committee, Georgia, Ohio State, Michigan, Florida State, outside looking in Washington, Oregon, Texas, Alabama, Missouri, Louisville. I'm not talking about that. I'm going to get into a little bit of Michigan over at Penn State. going to be talking about not just Jim Harbaugh. Now we find out that uh, Michigan has been like, no, okay, well, uh, his suspension, we ain't going to fight it. Is Jim Harbaugh worth all this shit? Really? I, 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 and, and it's the situation where it's like, well, he's going to the pros anyway, this, that, and the other. My question is going to be, is he really worth it? Let, let, let's just say that Jim Harbaugh is like, no, I want to come back. If you're, if you're Michigan, I know that Harbaugh is a Michigan man. But is he really worth all this shit? This isn't the first time he's been put in the penalty box, right? This isn't the first time that he's been punished, right? This is not the first time that he's facing some bullshit like this. <sighs> is he worth it? Let's just say, for instance, that Michigan doesn't win a national championship moving forward. Is he, is he worth it? I don't know. I don't know. And Jimbo. People are up there speaking about um, Jimbo Fisher. Like, does Jimbo Fisher want to... Uh, Get back in the coaching. Well, yeah, he does because he can't leave coaching like this. He's a laughing stock. This, that, and the other. Jimbo Fisher's making seventy-six million dollars a year. Uh, it's going to be making seventy-six million dollars. He got a buyout of seventy-six million dollars. You think he gives a flying fuck what people think? And how fucking stupid? How fucking ignorant? How fucking clownish? How fucking buffoonish would it be for people to be laughing at him? Laughing at him? Laughing at him? The man is going to be collecting $76 million until, what, 2027? What the fuck are you laughing at? Not unless you're going to be making more money than that to do nothing. Jimbo Fisher is going to get paid $76 million whether he coaches or not. And if he wants to go coach at JUCO, guess what? Texas A&M still has to pay him the buyout amount of $76 million. Hello? Hello? And you're going to be laughing at him? Look in the mirror and laugh at you. You fucking buffoon. You clown. You clown show. You child. All of those things I will be discussing. I can imagine me. I'm walking down the street. When I get fired from my job, I don't have to work. And for the next uh, seven or eight years, they're going to be paying me like 7.6 something million dollars to wear at the end, by, by 2030, I'm going to be having $76 million in the bank. I'm walking down the street. I don't give a damn where I'm walking down the street. In what country? I don't give a damn. You think I'm going to be like, oh, man, those people over there are laughing at me because I got fired from my job at Texas A&M. I can't let that happen. I have to go ahead. I need to get me another job. I need to, I need to, get, back in the, I need to get back into the thick, thick of things. I can't go out like this. I can't have these people laughing at me. I just can't do it. I can't go ahead and do it. As I'm making, as I, as as uh, a, a team or a university is going to pay me a 
total amount of $76 million. <laughs> Please, give me a break. My, oh my, the world that we live in. And oh yeah, I also have to talk about my Georgetown Hoyas. That'll be later on in the program. And um, the Clippers. <laughs> oh my goodness. Your Los Angeles Clippers, man. 0-5, oh, 0-6 oh, since they got James Harden. Meanwhile, Tyrese Maxey is playing like, uh, I don't know, like, like he's second team All-NBA right now. Woo, boy. Karma is a bitch on the beard. Huh? The system. Huh? Right? Isn't that what he says? I'm a system, man. I'm not just a player. I'm a system. Oh, my goodness gracious, James. Work, working hard for the money. You're working hard for your honey. You work hard for the money, so you better do it right. So whatever Diana Donna Summers was talking about. Wendell Wallace. <laughs> I'm all over the place, right? Wendell Wallace. Wendell's World in Sports. Ready for war, Joe? How you wanna blow these spots? I know these dirty cops that'll get us in if we murder some wop. Hop in your hummer, the punishes ready. Meet me and Vito's with noodles, we do this do while he's slurping spaghetti. Everybody kiss the fucking floor, Joe. We crack, fuck them all if they move, noodles, shoot that fucking whore. Dead in the middle of little, literally little. Did we know that every riddle to middle, man, who didn't do diddly? It'll be a cold day and how the day I take it now. Make no mistake, for real, I wouldn't hesitate to kill. But still a fat one that you love to hate. Catch you at your mother's waist, smack you, then I whack you with my stuff to yay. I rub your face with the earth and curse your family's children like Amityville and drill the nerves in your cavity filling. Insanity's building a pavilion in my civilian. It can't be the anarchy that humanity's filling. A villain without remorse who's willing to out your boss forever and take all the chatter like child support. I support one in anything he does, anything he loves. Another brother from another mother sent for the above. A dark nigga just like me, one of the best might be. Even better, even niggas kneeling on a right knee. Spike Lee couldn't paint a better picture. You small change, I'm blowing out Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Whew, boy, I'm thinking about mm, mm, people. Where I don't, I'm not going to even name it. Was, it was Sirius XM that I was listening to last night, which gate, which I almost ran off the road. I was like, they were having a discussion on the uh, college football sports channel about Jimbo Fisher. And it was like, well, you know, he's he's got to get back into coaching. I mean, he can't leave it like that. People are going to be laughing at him. People are going to be looking at him and stopping him and pointing at him to their friends and talk about, oh, my goodness, there's the guy who got fired from Texas A&M and he was supposed to come in and have Texas A&M compete with Alabama and LSU and win national championships. So they signed him to a 10-year, $95 million contract. Then when the LSU job came open, because Ed Orgeron was a mistake, Texas A&M gave Jimbo Fisher an extension. Even though before then he hadn't done anything. He didn't do anything except bring in a highly recruited, like one of the greatest recruiting classes of all time by ranking. That's the only thing that Jimbo Fisher did. He didn't beat Alabama. He didn't win national championships. And as we take a look right now, Ole Miss under Lane Kiffin has their program in a better position than Texas A&M. Ole Miss, Mississippi, Mississippi, Mississippi has, well, Texas A&M, College Station, they sound like that too. I can't believe the doggone, can you believe that doggone uh, Mississippi? Mississippi has that, that program's in a better position than we are. Dad, what the hell's going on here? How much we paying Jimbo? 
nine to five million, nine to five million dollars, and we can't even beat Mississippi. We can't even beat Vanderbilt. Well, we beat Vanderbilt. Hell, we should be beating Vanderbilt. We're paying a man nine to five million fucking dollars. What nerd tooting is going on here? Who am I going to, oh, let me go ahead and vote for uh, Dan Patrick because I'm a fucking idiot. Well, get back to my rant about uh, Texas A&M. What in the darn hell is going on with Jimbo Fisher? That man needs to go. Every once in a while, it's very therapeutic for me to be ignorant and to make fun of folks from down south by using those stereotypical, that, that, that stereotypical um, uh, uh, ploy right there with the voice and everything. I apologize. But basically what I'm saying is that I don't care. Hey, there goes Wendell Wallace. Hey, Wendell. Hey, how did you do that today? I'm going to coach in Mississippi, uh, uh, Texas A&M. You darn fool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I look at them and be like, motherfucker, you take a look at my paycheck, bitch. How much money you making, bitch? Where are you going to be going? What are you going to be doing? If I made, if I had a buyout, someone right now plopped down and said, you know what? We're going to start paying you annual uh, we're going to start paying you millions upon millions of dollars. Five, six, seven million dollars. Which means after taxes and everything, we're probably going, you're probably going to be able to keep. They're going to be paying me, for instance, I think. what I don't even know what the report is in terms of how much money they're going to be paying him. In terms of the buyout for, um, for, the, rest of the, uh, for the rest of his tenure. Uh, let me see here. So Texas A&M is going to owe Fisher $19.2 million within 60 days and then pay him $7.2 annually, annually through 2031. $7.2 million for the next eight years. Again, which means that he's probably going to be taking home about 3.4, 3.5, 3.6, depending upon who the president is, maybe even more than that. You, you think I give a fucking rat's ass what people are talking about in terms of they're laughing at me? You give me right now $3.7 million and you have me go, you have that uh, put on my uh, plate for until 2031? Man, do you realize how many cruises I'm going on? Do you realize I'm going to be, well, I'm not going to put this place up for uh, sale, but I'm damn sure going to go back to D.C., the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area, maybe get me a place in Albany, Maryland, Maybe uh, get me a nice place in leisure roles since I'm getting up in age. Maybe uh, somewhere around that area. Maybe somewhere up there. Maybe somewhere in uh, PG County. Maybe somewhere around there. Move back home. Get myself a nice nice little um, place to stay in. And then find me a female about uh, 39 years old who's uh, physically enhanced. That's going to satisfy my needs. And guess what, darling? Uh, our first cruise that we're going to go on, 14 days to Hawaii. Next cruise, we're going to go down to Mexico. Next cruise, we're going to go over to uh, Alaska. Next cruise, we're going to go over to uh, Australia and go around there. And that's going to be in the first two or three months of, th that's going to be all before the end of the, well, not before the end of the year, but before uh, the end of Black History Month, before uh, February. And that's what we're going to be doing. As long as they can show me my Georgetown Hoyas, that's where we're going to be going. 7.2 and they're laughing at them get out of here i'm sorry i got sidetracked let me go ahead and talk about talk about the first four the selection committee the first four teams georgia overtakes ohio state michigan number three florida state number four looking in outside looking in washington oregon texas 
Alabama, Missouri, Louisville that rounds out the top 10. There's going to be some changes before the end of everything. We know Ohio State's going to play Michigan. We know Washington and Oregon are going to play again. Um, Other than that, I don't really see any movement. Of course, if Georgia loses to Alabama in the SEC championship, I don't know exactly what that means. I mean, could you really take out Georgia if they lose to Alabama? Could you really move Alabama from number eight all the way up to the final four? Of course, it's going to depend on other things, but still, could could that be possible? Could that really happen? Because it's going to be a situation where I think the winner, I think it's going to be a situation where if Michigan loses to Ohio State because of the whole Jim Harbaugh thing, I think Michigan is going to drop out of the top four. I think, well, I think the same thing with Ohio State only because this will be the third time that Michigan uh, will beat them three times in a row. So I think because of that, Ohio State is going to fall out of the top four. So really there's going to be Um, a place for the winner of the Pac-12 championship game between, in all likelihood, Washington and Oregon, even though Washington has a pretty important game against Oregon State. I I just cannot wait. I said this before, and I'll say this again, because really, I really don't have too much more to offer. I think Georgia's the best team in the country. I don't know how. It's really hard for me to discuss the college football selection committee, their top teams and how they do things when I have no idea of the conclusion that they came to, right? Washington gets penalized just a little bit in terms of them trying to get into the final four because they barely beat Utah or they should have buried uh, Arizona State more. But yet and still, Florida State remains in the top four even though they struggled against Miami. I, I don't understand that. So how are you dealing with that And if you take a look at the best victory now, wouldn't you say between Georgia, Ohio State, Michigan, Florida State, and Washington, the undefeated teams, that the best victory of those five teams would be Washington's victory against Oregon? Well, it was only three points. Well, it was at home. Well, Oregon missed the game-time field goal, a very makeable field goal. Well, I mean, I mean, I I don't know how you do this. So it's... The victory, the victory between, or Florida State's victory over LSU, that's greater than Washington's victory over Oregon. Ohio State's victory over Notre Dame is greater than anything Michigan, Florida State has done. Georgia moved past Ohio State this week, this week based on what? Their game against... Um, their game against Missouri, where they were impressive, but Ohio State blew out Michigan State 38-3. Yeah, but Michigan State is not in the same caliber of Missouri. Okay, um, I don't get it. One, one thing that I have to keep reminding myself, myself with these teams, and these teams need to do this too. Hey, look, man, whether you're 1, 2, 3, or 4, just get in because you're playing on a neutral field. So it, there is no home field advantage or anything like that. And you only play two games, both of them on neutral field. So whether you're one, whether you're two, whether you're three, if you're the number two seed, let's just say, for instance, I'm going to use that phrase again, man. Let's just say, for instance, that the season ended today, right? And you had Georgia versus Florida State, Ohio State versus Michigan. Okay. Where's the advantage? Especially between Ohio State and Michigan. They're both 
Whether one is two, whether the other one is three, who cares? They're going to be playing on a neutral field. What, maybe um, Michigan plays better when they're wearing their road uniforms? I don't know. I mean, I don't know what the big difference would be. My thing, my thought process would be, I don't care if we're in one, two, three, or four. As long as I get in, we're cool. Now, maybe the opponent that you're playing, maybe Georgia is a bad matchup for a Washington or for Oregon, or maybe, um, you know, uh, Alabama might be a bad matchup for Michigan. I don't know. I don't know. Oregon might be a bad matchup for Florida State. I don't know. I have no idea. But for the most part, it's mainly just get in and see what happens because there really is no advantage as far as playing once once the actual competition begins because you're going to be playing at a neutral site. So I, I really don't know about that. I, I, my, my thought process is I think Georgia is without question the best team in college football. Um, I think Michigan is up there, but Ohio State has been up and down. Their quarterback play has been eh. And we speak about Marvin Harrison Jr., the load that he has to um, that, that he has to take for that offense, especially in the passing game. Kyle, McC- uh, Kyle McCord, I don't know, man. I, I don't know exactly. He did it once against Ohio, uh, against uh, Notre Dame, but he wasn't lighting the world on fire in that game. It was more of the final drive that got him the yay yays and the hey hey's and we're finally here and how about that and all that nonsense. But for the game itself, he wasn't lighting the world on fire. So, I mean, this is a situation with Ohio State. And again, when they play Michigan in a couple of weeks, we'll get a better understanding. Michigan, very impressive against Penn State 24-15. But then again, that's Penn State. And how many times have James Franklin in his 10 years at Penn State had to lose to a top five ranked team or lose to Ohio State and Michigan? Yeah, James, I, I understand. I, I, I get it. I get it. I understand that at the press conference, when you lose to Michigan and Ohio State, Ohio State again, that you come up and say, hey, it was a successful season. We're going to win 10 plus games. And the only two losses that we have in the regular season are going to be to the uh, number one or number two or number three team in the country. So uh, why is everybody getting so upset about What's all with the uh, down faces? What's all with the, uh, what's, what's going on with that? Well, the problem is, James, is that especially with Ohio State, I, I don't know if Ohio State is going to be in a situation again where you're going to be able to beat them. This was supposed to be the year. I mean, we can understand the other years. We can understand losing to Ohio State. And we can understand losing to Michigan. In most years, because most years, clearly Penn State is not at that level. We get it. We understand it. But this year, with either one of those two, this was supposed to be different. And I'm thinking more towards beating Ohio State than Michigan. This was supposed to be different. You had the quarterback, Sean Clifford is no longer on the team, this, that, and the other. You have this five-star quarterback who's going to introduce Penn State to an offense that's actually in the 21st century, play a, you know, have a quarterback that's going to play to win, not to lose. And we have a quarterback in Drew Elder who's just playing just to, he's trying to play mistake-free football, cautious football that's not going to do anything from a standpoint of Penn State putting up any type of real resistance or real uh, force to win a football game. So, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that Michigan, you know, Michigan did what they needed to do. Uh, Sherrod Moore, Sharon Moore, whatever the coach is for Michigan. Um, excellent job, offensive coordinator, acting head coach while Harbaugh is going to be out for the uh, rest of the season. Of course, he's, you know, brother, can we start with the, can we start dropping the fucks? 
This guy's fucking great, man. Fucking unbelievable. That that, Gerard, come on, man. It's hard enough for a black man to get through every day in this in, the, in this country, right? Let, let's see what we can do and kind of kind of tone it down a little bit with the fucks, for fuck's sake. <laughs> you know, great man. Talk to him. Talk to him. She's like, yeah, that's a good idea. I think we will talk to him. Thanks, coach. Jeez. Hey, uh, bro, stop with the cursing, will you? But uh, yeah, but uh, you know, it was a dominant perform performance. Blake Cordham, 145 yards, two touchdowns. Uh, JJ McCarthy, who. I mean, on one hand, he didn't have to throw the football because Michigan was so dominant. That's great. But uh, selfish Wendell Wallace in J.J. McCarthy's position would be, say, uh, Coach, do you mind if we throw the football because, you know, not only am I trying to get that Heisman Trophy, not only am I trying to improve my chances with that, I kind of also want to see what I can do about being drafted. So could you kind of have me throw the ball, I don't know, maybe three, four times this half? The one time he threw the ball, pass interference. Rest of the time, I think 32, 33 rushes in the uh, second half. So, great job by Michigan getting it done. And like I said, Penn State under Franklin. Penn State is 3-17 and versus top 10 teams, including 1-14 versus Michigan and Ohio State. Those teams that are ranked in the uh, top 10. So, mm. Friday, Jim Harbaugh was suspended. Dun, 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 did we see that coming? Or this past Friday, he was uh, suspended for the rest of the regular season. Michigan violated the sportsmanship policy because a university football staff member engaged in an organized, extensive, year-long in-person advanced scaling scheme that was impermissible. The allegations against Michigan center on a former low-level staffer, Connor Stallions, purchasing tickets to the games of future opponents and sending people to these games to record video of that team signal. The Big Ten called it an organized, extensive, year-long, in-person advanced scouting scheme. Multiple Big Ten schools say they found records of ticket purchases, of tickets purchased in, in Stallions' name to their games and surveillance video of the people sitting in those seats pointing their phones toward the field. Photos on the internet also suggest Stallions was on the Central Michigan sideline during the September 1st game against Michigan State wearing CMU gear and sunglasses. <laughs> for, for Michigan State? I don't care if Mel Tucker was still coaching that team. Michigan, You needed to do this against Michigan State? In the statement from the conference, Michigan was found to be in violation of the Big Ten sportsmanship policy for conducting an, imp- an impermissible in-person scaling operate- operation over multiple years, resulting in an unfair competitive advantage that compromised the integrity of competition. Harbaugh's suspension bans him from the game venue on game days. He is allowed to coach the team the remainder of the week, which really is, in all actuality, a slap, a slap on the wrist. Because I'm, I'm quite sure if Coach Hallball is going to do all of those things in terms of uh, violating the sportsmanship policy by doing what he did. I don't even know if this is a rule or not or whatever, but I'm quite sure that on the sidelines, <clears throat> especially <clears throat> especially the game against Ohio State, that he's going to be somewhere, somewhere, at Hotel, Motel, Holiday Inn. 
he's going to be doing something in terms of texting somebody to relay to the coach, the acting coach more, that this is what he wants to do. Now, it might not be a situation where shall we go for it on fourth down or something like that, but it could be a situation like, for instance, I'm quite sure the decision for for uh, the Wolverines to run the ball as much as they did on Saturday against Penn State, I'm quite sure that came with the blessing of Coach Harbaugh because I'm quite sure someone relayed that information to Coach Moore that Coach Harbaugh watching the game approves of your decision to keep running the ball and keep it up. So I'm quite sure if Jim Harbaugh needs to do something in terms of uh, during the game, in terms of strategies or, or something like that, he had the phone, he has someone that he can text, that person he's going to text, that he's going to text for information, for instruction, will be able to go through the channels to where ultimately it's going to get the coach more to be able to uh, do what he needs to do. So th- this is not going to be a situation where he's going to be in jail without no bail in terms of Harbaugh being able to maneuver, finagle his way to try to make an impact on the remaining two games against Maryland and against Ohio State. Here's the thing, man. I- I'm so sick and tired. I'm so sick and tired of this country talking about cheating especially when it comes to sports. I'm just sick and tired of it. I'm sick and tired of this country whining and crying about this nonsense. When we have bigger fish, when when the discussion of cheating comes up, right? Oh my goodness, this is terrible and all this is horrible and this, that, and the other. Man, do you know what country, do you know what kind of country we live in? (laughs) Do we know, do we realize what country that we live in right now? Again, who controls college football? The TV executives. That's who. Of course they want Michigan in there. How juicy of a story would it be to have Michigan in there right now? Not only are we talking about a team that's on the field good enough to be in the playoffs and has a fan base, countrywide fan base, that's going to watch these games, but guess what? They can continue to talk about this. This will bring in some of these folks who really don't care about college football because guess what? In a situation like this, we can build a narrative to whether you love Michigan or you hate Michigan. That you think Michigan should be in the uh, in the playoffs or Michigan shouldn't be in the playoffs and you're going to watch them to lose. Whatever gets you to the TV screen, whatever has you watch the game, these folks don't care. So hell yeah, they want Michigan in the Final Four. If they can beat Maryland, if they can beat Ohio State, and I think if they play Ohio State tough and lose, I still think they'll get in there. Because that's the story. Because that's juiciness. And that's what this country is all about. You really think our country is all about righteousness? You think our country is really about doing the right thing? You think our country is really all about that? Who's going to be the nominee for the Republican Party? <laughs> For those who answer the question, yeah, we're all about rules. Yeah, we're all about justice. Yeah, we're all about fairness. Yeah, we're all about unselfishness. Yeah, we're all about thinking of others. Yeah, we're all about helping others. Yeah, we're all about our fellow man. Yeah, we're all about that. But I'm still going to report. I'm still going to vote for the dementia evil antichrist that's going to be at the head of the Republican Party. Get the fuck out of my face with your stupidity and nonsense. You'll be able to vote for that piece of shit, that antichrist, the devil himself. But yeah, I can't believe that Michigan's going to be able to participate in the college uh, football playoffs because Jim Harbaugh was caught cheating. Give me a break. My question now is, if you're Michigan, 
How much more do you pull up with this nonsense from Jim Harbaugh? Now, there's situations where, hey, look, man, this could be a fait accompli. This is the second time this year he's actually missed games because of violating NCAA regulations. So this is going to be the second time this season that he's going to be missing games. When you get to Michigan, on the front of Michigan, um, how much is enough? Because he still hasn't won a national championship. Now, look. Michigan, Bo Beckler, Michigan man, all that good stuff. For all of the historical greatness of Michigan, I don't think Michigan has ever outright won a national championship. Or let's put it this way. If they have won a national championship, no one recognizes it unless they're a diehard Michigan fan, football fan. So this is a situation where a guy who last year went to the, uh, coached his team to the Final Four, the college football Final Four, and they lost to TCU, And then TCU got their doors blown open by Georgia. This could be a situation where it's like, look, man, you know, if if he ain't going to win a national championship, (laughs) I don't know if he's worth all the bullshit. I don't know if he's worth all the nonsense. Now, it could be a situation where it's like, hey, you know what? If he wants to take that job in Las Vegas, if he wants to take that job in Chicago, if he wants to take any other job, if he's interested, we say, go for it. The situation where, so we don't look like the bad guys. Because, let's just say, for instance, either or, or no, let, let's just say, for instance, his absence costs them against Ohio State. Or the perceived absence costs them against Ohio State. Or they make it to the playoffs and they lose again. It may be pretty hard even with all of the nonsense, even with all the bullshit that you had to put up with with Harbaugh, and that's just violating NCAA rules, just the quirkiness and the uniqueness of his of his personality. This could be a situation where it could be pretty hard to, uh, it would be hard to fire him. <laughs> It'd be damn near almost impossible to fire him. And we don't even know what is coming down the street. Michigan's speaking about, hey man, um, you know, we, uh, we're we not going to contest this anymore, blah, blah, blah. So we really don't know what else the NCAA had on Harbaugh in terms of this, this, this cheating scandal. So, you know, it could be a situation where it could be a lot worse than what we even thought, that we even think right now. So if Michigan doesn't win this, I don't know, man. I don't know. I don't know what to do with him. I don't know exactly if he's kind of worn out his welcome. I don't know. You have to deal with alumni. You have to deal with some other folks. But it will be interesting moving forward in this situation. All right. Let me go ahead and move on. I'm going to uh, take a boogie break. And uh, after I calm down, because speaking about the the Antichrist in this country, possibly putting a guy who's going to end our democracy uh, on at, 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 at leading the free world and then speaking about, no, nah, man, I'm not racist. No, nah, there's no white privilege. No, nah, I'm not from the black community or Hispanic community or Asian community and not completely in, uninformed and stupid for me doing such a thing. So while I calm down discussing after discussing that, let me uh, bring my blood pressure back up after the break because guess what? I'm going to talk about Georgetown. You're damn right. Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World in Sports.
last segment of the podcast. Last segment of the program, Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. I want to get into, before I get into my Georgetown Hoyas, let me go ahead. I just want to uh, reiterate again the the funniness, the irony of uh, the Philadelphia 76ers trading James Harden to the uh, Los Angeles Clippers. And again, we spoke about this before. I spoke about this on my last podcast in terms of what does it mean for uh, both teams when you're speaking about the trade that went down. Look, the, the Clippers aren't going to lose every single game that they have with James Harden. Um, I thought the game they had against Denver was uh, their best game, obviously. If you realize the whooping that Dallas gave them, if you remember the embarrassing out, uh, outputs that they had to get the Knicks and the uh, the Knicks and the um, uh, new uh, the Brooklyn Nets, and then losing at home to uh, Memphis, bad, bad, bad. I don't know what was rock bottom in terms of that stretch is concerned, having Luka score 565 points in 15 minutes, or the fact that you lost to a team in Memphis without John Morant, who might be outside of my Washington, which is the most embarrassing, the worst team so far this season. I don't know. Them, Memphis, Washington, and Detroit are pretty are pretty wretched. And if you want to see a clown show, go watch the Washington Wizards as they ha- allow teams to put up 140 points in already. Jordan Poole is showing signs of immaturity, discontent, and unprofessionalism. All right. Way to go, Weston Cell Jr. Hmm. Renting? Buying? Have a mortgage? Hope not. So, um, here we are. The uh, Clippers, when they're speaking about, oh, man, this trade was this, that, and the other. Here's the thing that I saw uh, when watching the, uh, the, the Nuggets game the other night. Um, this is a situation where, man, this, this is Paul George's team. Um, so far out of the four, and I'm not just going to say, I'm going to say the three. Because normally you talk about the four as it being James Harden, Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, Russell Westbrook. Russell Westbrook does not belong in any big four. Okay, the Clippers basically were the only team for the most part. For the most part. There were some others who were maybe stiffing around. But for the most part, the Los Angeles Clippers were the only one that threw Russell Westbrook a lifeline after he was let go by the Los Angeles Lakers, right? And, and Russ is in a perfect situation for him. He lives in Los Angeles. His kids go to school in Los Angeles. He's very family-oriented, so everything is right there for him. He still lives in Los Angeles in the offseason, so it's either the Clippers or the Lakers. One of the reasons why at first he was so giddy, about going to the Los Angeles Lakers when he was traded from the Washington Wizards was the fact that he could play close to home and play in Los Angeles. So so basically, this is this is the last time, Russ. This is this is it. If you don't make it with the Clippers, I don't know what better situation there is for you. Same thing with James Harden, right? James Harden wanted to go back home, but he wanted to play in Los Angeles, and he ain't going to play for the Lakers. So the Clippers are going to be the only team that was going to a trade for him he's the only one that wanted to he he that was the team he wanted to go to and probably the Clippers are going to be the only team that's going to give him the money that he wants all right or the best situation is going to be the Clippers if he wants that long-term contract which probably he's not going to be getting right Steve Ballmer has more money than Jesus Um, there's a situation where they're going to be moving into a new arena 
Um, the Clippers and Ballmer are trying to do everything to kind of even the playing field in terms of attention in the Los Angeles market with the Los Angeles Lakers. So the more stars you bring in, homegrown stars that you bring in, Ballmer is kind of computing, is kind of uh, puff, uh, saying that this is going to uh, help their profile in the Los Angeles market. So James Harden, Russell Westbrook, Paul George, Kawhi Leonard. Four homegrown guys, even though I think, what, um, Leonard is from Riverdale or something, something like that, I guess. But here's the situation, idiotcy, nonsense, violence, not a good policy. This is, this is a situation where it's pretty clear that when it comes to winning time, you can't have all four on the court. Now, maybe starting the game you can with Zubats as your center, but when things get serious in the fourth quarter, in all likelihood, Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, regardless of the game that they played or anything, they're going to be on the court. When it's winning time, Ty Lue, head coach Ty Lue, is going, to have, is going to have Paul George and Kawhi Leonard on the floor. In all likelihood, he's probably going to have James Harden on the floor. And whether he's going to mix that with Norman Powell, whether he's going to mix that with Terrence Mann, whether he's going to mix that with P.J. Tucker at the center position, upon you know, depending upon the matchups and the situation, that's going to be probably the winning time. That's probably going to be the crunch time lineup. Notice in all of those lineups that I just mentioned that none of them included Russell, Russell Westbrook. Now, maybe it fits a situation where James Harden is not playing or James Harden is out or James Harden gets ejected or James Harden is pouting. James Harden is already making his move down to uh, Hollywood to go party and he really doesn't feel like playing in the game or whatever reasons. If James Harden is not going to be on the floor, then, yeah, you could see Russell Westbrook at crunch time. But because Russell Westbrook cannot shoot, cannot hit an outside shot. There's no way that you could play both James Harden and Russell Westbrook. On top of that, none of those guys playing the defense. I'm speaking about the backcourt tandem of James Harden and Russell Westbrook. Russell Westbrook sort of kind of tries. James Harden on defense doesn't try at all. So in crunch time, you can't have two guards out there who don't play any defense at all. So because of that, and Kawhi Leonard and Paul George are not the two-way players that they once were. Kawhi Leonard definitely isn't. I mean, we, we've seen matchups now against Denver. Basically, it was the Nikola Jokic show, and they force-fed him every single time down the court. Why? Because P.J. Tucker was trying to guard him at 6'4", 6'5". Kawhi Leonard, a small forward, was trying to guard him at 6'6". Paul George, at a couple of times on the switch, tried to guard him in the post. None of that stuff was going to happen. I was shocked. I was surprised. I was flabbergasted that Ty Lue didn't have Zubac in the game. He knows a lot more about NBA basketball than I do, so... You know, he had good reason for it, but I was kind of like, you're going to have Nikola Jokic basically barbecue, beat up these guys. Because not only does it take a toll on the Clippers from the defensive end trying to guard the best player in the game in Nikola Jokic, but it's also going to take some strength from them on the offensive side. So it'd be kind of tough to ask uh, someone like a Kawhi Leonard to guard Nikola Jokic on the defensive end and then tr try to get a basket on the offensive end. Same with Seen with uh, Paul George. So it was just interesting strategy right there. But um, yeah, the, the, the Clippers, some way, somehow, some way, if they're going to get this turned around, 
It's not going to be through the big four. This is not going to be a situation where, well, this needs to take time. Well, James just needs to start being James and get comfortable and all this type of stuff. If you're going to include Russell Westbrook at the long time fixture in terms of what ails the Clippers and can turn them around, that ain't going to happen. That's not going to happen. And the I know that the Clippers went ahead and got themselves Daniel Tice to uh, kind of help with the front court position. They don't have any size. They don't have any size. And that was clearly evident when um, when uh, Nikola Jokic was eating them up. So it'll be interesting to see when they start playing the Chet Holmgrens and the other big folks of the world, what's that going to look like, even though Holmgren is mainly a guy that floats around the uh, perimeter for the most part, but uh, I, I just I just didn't see how that was going to work. I'll get more into the NBA a little bit later on. I want to go ahead. My football game is almost on. Um, yeah, I'm going to be talking about my Georgetown Hoyas. This very quickly lost on the road to Rutgers. Again, enjoyed the effort. Unlike Holy Cross, I thought the rebounding was a lot better. I thought the defense was a lot better. Not so many attacks, not so many successful attacks at the rim like Holy Cross had on um, Saturday. What did they play? On uh, on Saturday. So I thought that de- I thought the defense was better. I thought the, the, the intensity was better. But just on offense, I mean, just out of sync. I, there, there, uh, except for Jaden Epps, who I don't know injured his ankle. I don't know how much that uh, influenced or how much impact that had. But uh, outside of Jaden Epps, nobody on this team can get to the basket. Nobody. With the shot clock running down, we can't. We don't have anybody with the exception of Epps who can make a play for us on offense. Roman Brawbow can't, and he tried. Lord knows he tried. I can see how he modeled, is modeling his game after Austin Reeves, especially on high pick and rolls. But um, his finishing was poor. Got himself in the air and made too many turnovers. Um, uh, st- uh, you know, we, we don't have anybody. We don't have anybody off the bench. We don't have anybody who can shoot. I love the hustle of Wayne Bristol, but he hasn't made a field goal yet. Duntress Styles had a great first half shooting the three ball, but he wasn't getting to the rim. So how are we supposed to be shooting free throws? How are we supposed to be getting people or opponents in the uh, in the bonus early when we don't have anybody on the team from a perimeter that can get the ball in the basket, that can get the ball, that can um, get get to the hoop? Outside of Styles, and our front court players, Supreme Cook. Come on, man. Come on. Come on. Come on. I mean, I love your rebounding, but come on, man. Finish. Finish. When you get the ball in the post, finish. He catches the ball. He's like he's like uh, Timothy Ogafe. He got. He gets the ball in the post. Uh, Styles, Brombal, Epps penetrates. The few times they penetrate, they kick the ball on the block, left or right or left side to uh, Supreme Cook. He catches. He doesn't catch it cleanly. He catches. Then he hesitates. And a couple of times against Rutgers, he was called for traveling. Against Holy Cross and even LeMoyne, he was stripped numerous times. Go up with the ball. Go up. Catch. Go up. Same thing with Batombo. Uh, um... Matambo, um, Ryan Matambo. Catch, pause, pause, gather, go up. Come on, man, finish. Tear the fucking rim down. 
I don't give a fuck if you have, I don't give a fuck if you have, if you get your shot blocked every single fucking time. But Tombo, Fielder, who played the entire game against Rutgers on the perimeter, I mean, he was nothing more than a facilitator. He didn't go in the post. He didn't call for the ball in the post. He didn't try to take anybody off the dribble. He didn't look for a shot at all. He got some decent minutes, but man, I want to see this guy develop. Put him in the post. Let him get his ass whooped. Let him get beat up. Let him get thrown around. He's only a freshman. He's going to be good. Let him get his shot blocked. Let him get emasculated. That's fine. He's a freshman. He, 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 that's all part. He's a four-star recruit. Number 124 on 24-7. Uh, learning. 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 That's fine. Now look, Coach Cooley knows more about college football and his team more than I do, but still, man, it's like I see Fielder in the game. Is All, all he's doing is running around the perimeter, uh, handing the ball off to Brumbauer reps. Like, come on, man. There's no place that you can get in the post. He made a nice couple of nice uh, entry passes to uh, Cook. But then again, Cook got the ball, bobble, not knowing what to do. Like, come on, man, just, just go up for the shot. You know, get the ball, turn around and shoot. If you throw a brick, you throw a brick. If you get blocked, you get blocked. I don't care. Just just do something other than catch, hold, gather, hold, gather, go up, travel, catch, bobble, grab, gather, strip, catch, gather, take a break, go up, lose the ball out of bounds. We're going to need you, Supreme. We're going to need you, Ryan. We're going to need you, man. We're going to need you. Ismael Masood is, uh, is, Ismael Masood is more of a three-point shooter. He's not a back-to-the-basket guy. We're going to need you to do something. Finish. Do something. <sighs> they play American. I forget. But I'll be watching. You're damn right on that one. All right. I'm done. I'm out of here. Scatterbox, but uh, it's been that kind of week for me. It's been those, been that kind of two weeks for me. So I want to thank you very much for... Um, I want to thank you so much for uh, listening. I want to thank you so much for holding in. I'll do much better the next time. Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World of Sports. As always, man, can we please treat each other with some respect, with some kindness, please? I don't give a damn about your race. I don't give a damn about who you love. I don't give a damn about where you're from. I don't give a damn about how much money you make. I don't give a damn about your political aspirations, even though if you are for the other... If you are for the other party, I, I can't deal with you. I don't care about your religious background. I don't care if you're atheist. I don't care if you're a Muslim. I don't care if you're Christian. I don't care what you are, man. As long as you're going to treat me with love and respect and dignity and those type of things, I'm going to do the same to you. And that's what we need in this world today. Love, respect, unity, honor, all those good things. I want to watch me this game between Baltimore and Cincinnati. Get me out of here, please with some music.